press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the journalists of The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Claire Harvey. It's Wednesday, July 20. Keep inflation between 2 and 3%. That's the Reserve Bank's guiding principle, and it's why your interest rate keeps going up as the bank tries to squash growing inflation. Labor is looking at changing the whole system with a sweeping review of the RBA to re-examine that inflation target. Treasurer Jim Chalmers will announce the review's terms of reference today at the Australian's Strategic Forum. Labor will hold firm on its election promise of a 43% emissions cut by 2030 in the wake of a damning report about the rate of environmental damage and extinctions. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says Labor will expand Australia's national estate to protect 30% of Australia's land and oceans by 2030 and doubling the number of Indigenous rangers. In 2022, Australians voted for the environment. They voted for action on climate change. After a lost decade, after a decade of going backwards, we can't waste another minute. There's a fight brewing over one of Australia's most significant Indigenous sites, a tiny island in Sydney Harbour, once home to Aboriginal leaders Barangaroo and Bennelong. Descendants of some of the harbour's original people say the New South Wales government is about to hand the island to a land council they don't consider to be the harbour's true traditional owners. Stay with us, more on that story and the fascinating tale of Tiny Goat Island in just a moment. Right in the middle of Sydney Harbour is a tiny sandstone island, a jewel in the glittering water. It's Memel, or Goat Island, as the British colonisers called it. It's hugely significant as a place of early contact with Indigenous Australians, and it was once home to Wangal man Wularaware Benelong and his wife, Kamaragal leader Barangaroo, who was a famously skilled fisherwoman and a fierce guardian of the harbour's natural resources. I know that discovering the story about Barangaroo helped me to do, to discover or rediscover a little about myself and about my family and my community and my people's history. It was used to house convict work gangs and as a gunpowder storage facility. And later, it was the set of 90s cop procedural water rats. Grey areas calculated lies. Calias is long gone, mate. We aren't going to find him. I've decided to trust you. Dodgy characters. Here's our boy. The drug screen found a type of sleeping pill in the system. The action relentless. The intrigue just beginning. In May, New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet announced $43 million would be invested in returning the island to the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council. But members of the La Perouse Aboriginal community are fighting the agreement, saying members of that land council don't actually have cultural ties to the area. Stephen Rice is the Australian's New South Wales editor and joins me now. Ricey, La Perouse is about 15 kilometres from Sydney Harbour. It's actually 
situated on Botany Bay, which is where Captain James Cook first sailed in. So why does the Lapa community have an interest in a harbour island? Well, the Laparoos community claim uh, with some justification that they are in fact the traditional owners of the entire area Um, and there is some good evidence that the inhabitants of the Sydney area stretched from north of Sydney Harbour all the way down to the New South Wales south coast. There's a misconception that white settlement just drove the Indigenous people out of the whole Sydney area, and that's not right. Throughout the early colonial era, there were camps of Indigenous people all around uh, Sydney, including in places like Mosman, Elizabeth Bay. And then in the late 1880s, the colonial government decided to shift all of these groups out to La Perouse. And many of those, the inhabitants of those people, remain in in La Perouse today. Ash Walker is an Oxford-educated lawyer and strategy consultant, and his father, Lloyd Walker, is a very famous rugby international. He played eight tests for Australia during the 1990s. Walker... And they believe that it's completely inappropriate, in fact, they say culturally offensive for this island, which is the jewel of the harbour and of great significance to them, should be handed to a metropolitan land council, the members of which they say have no claim to traditional ownership of the area. Many of the metropolitan uh, land council people do come from other areas of the state. And the walkers say that this is offensive, that the state government should be claiming to hand back ownership to the traditional owners, when in fact what it's doing is handing it to a statutory body which has been created for other purposes. One of the main functions is to apply for ownership of vacant crown land, uh, which can be sold and used for the, the benefit of Indigenous communities. It's a separate idea to be giving back land to the traditional owners But there are people in the La Perouse community who claim ancestry back to the 31 known people who were living in that Sydney Harbour area during colonial times. So what's the Land Council saying? The Metropolitan Land Council is pretty upset. They're saying that for a start, ownership of the island won't go specifically to them. They're saying that there will be a trust set up for ownership of the island and it will be for the benefit of Indigenous people generally. So, Ricey, is this story exposing a sloppy act by the New South Wales government? Have they just taken the easy way out? Um, not really bothering to find out who the traditional owners are? I think they haven't really thought that through. I think they've uh, they've got the right idea. I think universally there'd be, amongst most Australians, the idea of returning the island to traditional ownership is great. It's just that the government didn't really think through who the traditional owners might be and how that process Uh, might best be achieved. But I don't think they really took into account the fact that there is this other very distinct group of people who trace their ancestry to the original inhabitants of this Sydney coastal area. 
It's an effectively a decision to hand over the island to, they say, the wrong people. In their words, a group of foreigners. Stephen Rice is The Australian's New South Wales editor. Coming up, the dire skills shortage and what business wants done about it. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you look in Australia, there's a help wanted sign in a shop window. There are posters hanging over freeways with cafes looking for chefs. It's dire. There are half a million jobs vacant and there's record low unemployment, but every small business person is struggling. I'm joined now by Tiggy Fullerton, who's the Australian's business editor at large. She's speaking today at the Australian's Strategic Forum, specifically with business leaders about resilience and those skills shortages. Tiki, who have you spoken to ahead of this summit? I've spoken to uh, Ross McEwen, who uh, runs National Australia Bank, and he will be on the panel along with uh, David Lamont, the CFO of BHP, and Jean Johns, who runs Intertech Pivot. Now, these are are serious business leaders, and all of them have concerns about the skill shortage, the labour shortage in Australia at the moment. And really, this is a result of major border closures that we've had and endured all through COVID. And it's left us short of immigrant labour, skilled and unskilled. And the fact is that while the borders are opening up now, the system for bringing in people appears to be Quite broken, Claire. Is that it, Tiki? Is that the only problem, the lack of migrants or the the lack of easy pathways to bring skilled migrants into Australia? Or, Or is this also about the Australian workforce itself? Are we not training people properly? Look, it's not the only problem. You're quite right. And I think, uh, interestingly, also coming out today is the quarterly survey from NAB Economics, which they do of 800 small and medium businesses. And we see from that is overwhelmingly they're talking about immigration as a key thing, but also training, apprentices, really upskilling our existing workforce. You remember back in 1983, you had had uh, the accord between the main union, the ACTU, and the Labour government. Business wasn't actually part of that. It was Bob Hawke and Paul Keating that managed to agree, basically, workers to take a real wages cut in return for progress on a social wage, including things like compulsory super, which was begun at that time. And we saw an increase in productivity. Mr Hawke was elected on a promise of bringing Australians together. Well, after just five weeks, there they are. The captains of industry, the union bosses, the politicians. 
The difference this time around is that, well, back then unemployment was 10%. Here, unemployment is 3.5%. And it's really, really hard to find workers, let alone skilled workers, the right workers for your jobs. Workforce participation is another one, of course, and there'll be lots of exploration and things like how we can get both female workers and disadvantaged workers more into the workforce. We've also got this deadlock with wages, haven't we, Tiki? Every Australian would tell you they haven't had a real wage rise recently. We're now seeing unions make demands of up to 8% of wage rises. We've also got employers, though, who are really struggling to make ends meet to even survive, especially not being able to get staff. So who's going to blink first? Well, this is why I say it's going to be like threading the needle at this job summit, isn't it? I mean, this is really grim in terms of those who are hoping for agreement of and and refreshing of the really important enterprise bargaining system that was put in place and that's really been hollowed out in recent uh, years. So the ambition is for workers and unions to accept that we can't go down this route of spiralling wages increases, which will kill some small businesses if it goes on. And it's certainly not going to bring inflation down. You're going to get yourself into a really bad spiral, which is very, very difficult to come out of. But whether there can be that sort of, I don't know, grown-up talking between business, government and the unions, as there was in 1983, remains to be seen. Tiki Fullerton is The Australian's business editor-at-large. The Australian's Strategic Forum is on in Melbourne today. It's our annual summit of business and political leaders talking about the future of the economy. There'll be Treasurer Jim Chalmers, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe, Energy Australia Chair Jane McAloon and many others. You can read all our coverage live at theaustralian.com.au. Access a world of true crime podcasts on Crimex Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilant. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.